from ABC. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, hey, party people. Today on the show, we're going to do one of my favorite things, rescue and revivify a bunch of gauzy, somewhat incomprehensible, but nonetheless game-changing cliches. We are going to demystify and make practical concepts such as self-actualization, personal growth, authenticity, and bringing your whole self to the table. We've got a guest who, instead of just throwing these terms around, can actually explain what they mean in plain English and how to put them to use in your actual life. Scott Barry Kaufman is a cognitive scientist and humanistic psychologist. He's the founder and director of the Center for the Science of Human Potential at the University of Melbourne's Center for Wellbeing Science. Dr. Kaufman has taught at Columbia University, Yale, NYU, the University of Pennsylvania, and elsewhere. He also hosts the number one psychology podcast on Earth, which is called The Psychology Podcast. And perhaps most importantly, he is the author of a new book called Transcend, the New Science of Self-Actualization. In this conversation, we talk about the meaning of transcendence and the difference between unhealthy and healthy transcendence, what it means to have peak experiences and plateau experiences, existentialist philosopher Abraham Maslow and his ideas on self-actualization, being compassionate, understanding, accepting, forgiving, and perhaps even loving about your foibles and ugliness, bringing your whole self to the table, as mentioned earlier, and the difference between authenticity and pseudo-authenticity. All that coming up. First, though, one quick item of business. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've probably heard me talk about our companion meditation app, which is also called 10% Happier. The app is a place you can go to practice what we talk about here on the podcast, and you can do so with meditations that are led by some of our most popular podcast guests. It's sort of like science class in college. The podcast is the lecture and the app is the lab. So whether you're interested in treating yourself with a little bit more compassion, having hard conversations without hurting your relationships, or pausing and taking a breath instead of snapping at your children, you can learn about the skills here and then practice them over there in the app. But just like that uh, college lab section, motivating yourself to actually put in the practice time is hard. Those few milliseconds between closing the podcast app and firing up the meditation app are rife with possibilities for distraction, a new email, a breaking news alert, the temptation to doom scroll on Twitter, whatever. It can all derail you pretty quickly. That's why this show, the 10% Happier Podcast, is now available inside our companion app so that you can toggle seamlessly between listening and practicing, learning and doing. So now when you subscribe to the app, you'll be able to transition very easily to meditation right after listening to the podcast. Not to mention, you'll receive access to our many courses, which contain a whole lot of video, our sleep meditations, and the podcast episodes are ad-free. And good news, as promised, the ad-free podcast is available now both on iOS and Android. So to get started, download the 10% Happier app wherever you get your apps and then tap on the podcast tab at the bottom of your screen. Okay, here we go now with Scott Barry Kaufman. Scott Barry Kaufman, great to have you on. Thanks for coming on. Dan, so excited to talk to you today. So uh, I understand you were kind of going through a bit of a, an existential crisis while writing this book. Can, can you, I, think, I feel like that's a good place to start. What's the story there? Yeah, about 2013, 2014, I went in for a uh, what I thought would be a pretty benign procedure 
and it was very high probability that I would I would live, like extremely, extremely high. But I was like, you mean there's a chance that I might die? And it was like the first time in my life, it, it, like that thought occurred to me that like, wait, there's a chance I might die someday as well. I mean, it's such an obvious thing to to know that you're going to die someday, and we have it in the the background of our mind. But it really came to the forefront of my mind, and I had this existential panic. And I tried to find every book I could possibly find on the topic to help me uh, to make peace with this realization, this profound realization I had. Did you make peace with it? I I did uh, make peace with it to a large, very large extent. And it, it, you know, part of that journey was writing this book and all the amazing thinkers that have written about this topic throughout the ages. But not only Abraham Maslow, as well as uh, you know, East Indian philosophy to just, you know, the existential philosophers. But there's a whole field called existential psychotherapy and uh, Irving Yalom um, and his writings really helped me as well. We're going to go deep on this, but just for the, to, to, yeah. at the start of this conversation, what was, what's the punchline? Like, what, what did you learn that allowed you to, to, as, as you say, make, make some peace with mortality? I suppose in, to a very large degree, the punchline is that there is no punchline, that there really is no there there, that the greatest moments of transcendence in one's life don't come from these peak experiences. But I mean, they, they may, you know, periodically fool us into thinking they come only from the peak experiences. But if we train our mind in a certain way, they actually come from what Maslow called the plateau experiences which is the finding the miraculous in the everyday. And he says it's like lounging in heaven, not getting so excited about it. <laughs> and uh, these peak experiences are these things that we, we think we're, we're, we're striving for and that when we reach them, uh, then we've, we've reached the, the top of the mountain and then we're done. Um, and, then, and then we're always constantly disappointed. <laughs> Everyone's disappointed by these, and yet we, we somehow can't remember the fact that we get disappointed. <laughs> So there are a bunch of terms I think would be useful to define here. Well, terms and names. So who's Abraham Maslow? What are mm. peak experiences and what are plateau experiences? And what is transcendence? I mean, you you really started this interview. Do you realize you started this interview like jumping into the deep end? That's how we do it here. Okay, so it, well, Abraham Maslow is a, a humanistic psychologist from the 50s and 60s is where he, he gained the most prominence in the public culture. You have to understand the time period then, you know, the hippies and, and the whole human potential movement just fit really perfectly with Maslow's ideas of self-actualization and, and youth were so hungry for self-actualization um, and freedom of expression. Actually, Maslow did not really appreciate the way the youth interpreted his ideas of self-actualization. He, he actually railed against that a lot in his life. He's like, oh, the young people think it just means impulsively self-expressing yourself. And he thought it, it actually involved a lot of hard work and ethic and character. It's, it's funny that, you know, how the Milo, you know, the social time period took his ideas and they embraced it, but it didn't embrace it in a way he really loved. So he was a humanistic psychologist. Humanistic psychologists in general are interested in the whole person, um, the whole, what does it mean to be an experientially vital human? And what are the factors that predict that, you know, and scientifically, psychologically, um, experientially? And the second question you asked was, what are peak experiences? Uh, this is a phrase Maslow, I don't know if he coined it, but he, he definitely uh, is associated with it heavily. He referred to peak experiences, any experience you have that 
gives you this great sense of aliveness and getting outside of yourself in a way where you're not so focused on your trivial concerns and your uh, your ego and all self-related concerns, but you really see a broader uh, connectedness to all of humans. And he, he says it comes from lots of things. It can come from a sports performance to overcoming something big and mastering something to the sexual experience, to artwork, uh, to aesthetics, to nature, to beauty. He found a lot of women reported, and we actually found this in our own research, a lot of women reported childbirth is a great source of peak experiences. I'm going through this really quick. <laughs> this is like peak experiences, Cliff Notes version. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> the plateau experience is is a, a term that he adopted from his East Indian colleague Ua Azrani. So, have you ever heard of Ua Azrani? Most people nope. haven't. No, I haven't. Yeah, not. and you read it. He's he was like a East Indian mystic and a yogi. His writings were wonderful on the plateau experience and Maslow fell in love with them and as well and, and co-opted that term and talked about them as these kinds of experiences in life where you have immense appreciation of the moment, but you also see the impermanence of it at the same time. You, you're able to hold in your mind the state of these two things at the same time that give you a greater sense of transcendence for the moment, just a real walking into the moment. You know, it's like staring at a loved one and having in your heart your love for them, but also being able to imagine their death. You know, he has some beautiful descriptions of this, seeing the eternity, also just seeing the continuity of humanity in any situation. It's like, Dan, do you ever like talk to people and you're like, oh, that person reminds me so much of my friend Bob from high school, you know? Yes. Or, you, know the, and you, you start to live long enough and you start to see people and you can start in your head. I mean, it, it, I guess that's not good. It's called stereotyping, but you start in your head, you, you're you like, oh, that's that kind of person. Oh, that's that kind of person, you know? Like, oh, that person has that phenotype. You start to see that. And then I think you can start to generalize it actually in a beautiful way, not a stereotypical, hateful way whatsoever. Don't get me wrong, what I'm trying to say, you know, but you start to do it in kind of a beautiful, transcendent way where you start to realize that we're all, including ourselves, we're part of a long lineage of humanity, you know, and uh, going, going way, way, way back. You know, I'm a, you know, my sort of shtick too, you know, the way I talk, the way I look, you know, everything about me, you know, as well is part of a long, rich heritage that will, will continue after me. You know, there will be 500 years from now, if the humanity still exists, something resembling a Scott Barry Kaufman on a podcast with someone resembling a Dan Harris, hmm. They might not even know remember us. I mean, it'd be nice if they did. Wouldn't that be nice if we if we transcended 500 years? <laughs> but even if they never even met us, there will exist something very much resembling this moment that we're in right now. And uh, if we were alive to look at it, we would laugh to each other and be like, "See, you know, like that person is so Scott Barry Kaufman, you know, that person is so Dan Harris." But there's this kind of beauty in that, a kind of appreciation of the continuity of the human existence. You're doing great here with these terms. I think the fourth on the list, and bad news for you is I have so, I have some more to add to the list. But transcendence, which is a, a word that keeps coming up, but I think it's these are such fascinating concepts. So I think it's it's great to mm. just to get you to describe them so that we can then have a level set for the rest of the conversation. So let's let's go with transcendence if you're up for it. I'm definitely up for it. You got me started. You revved up the engine. Good. I define transcendent. I distinguish between healthy transcendence and unhealthy transcendence. And I, a lot of big part of my book is actually distinguishing between the two because there's a lot of things that are that they call themselves transcendence these days. And I 
think that they're just what what I would call spiritual narcissism. So in my book, I define healthy transcendence as an emergent phenomenon resulting from the harmonious integration of one's whole self in the service of cultivating the good society. It's not a level any human ever actually achieves, but it's a North Star for all of humanity. In a nutshell, healthy transcendence involves harnessing all that you are in the service of realizing the best version of yourself so you can help raise the bar for the whole of humanity. It's not about being outside of the whole or feeling superior to the whole, but being a harmonious part of the whole of human existence. So very, it's very much uh, horizontal more than vertical. So is, are you t- you're, you're not just talking about transcending the ego, the small self? No, I'm not just talking about that. No. In fact, Maslow proposed, and he has this beautiful article, Varieties of Transcendence, where he puts forward like... 150 meanings of the word transcendence. I mean, that word is used to to refer to so many things. I think that there's a form of transcendence where you're integrated with the world so much just by being who you are. You've transcended your body in a way. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. You're transcending the physical limitations of the body in a way. You know, your being just by who you are is so synergistic. This is a word that Maslow used, um, which he uh, adopted from his uh, anthropologist friend. There's such a synergy between self and world that just by being who you are and, and your purpose and your goals is making the world a better place, is, is really is raising the vibration of, of the universe. But, you know, there's just a great synergy. My friend, Dr. Mark Epstein, a psychiatrist, author, has an expression, there is no self apart from the world. I mean, that mm. gets right at the synergy. I mean, you, we, we do exist, Mark would argue. You know, we, on some level, I am Dan Harrison, you are Scott Barry Kaufman, but we don't exist as, in such a solid way as we might imagine. And our existence is contingent upon our sort of web of interrelations with other people and the physical world, et cetera, et cetera. Is that hunting in the direction that you're talking about here? It is. I still, to this day, I haven't like cracked the code of, I don't think anyone's cracked the code of what is the self and how's that instantiated in the brain and what what actually does exist there. Um, I have some thoughts about that from a cognitive science perspective. You know, Maslow really did view self-actualization as merely a bridge to transcendence. He argued, he, he has this beautiful essay he, that's unpublished. He said, it seems like the purpose of self-actualization is to erase itself. <laughs> that's the purpose of it, you know? Um, but I think along the way, there there is value in, in having a strong sense of self. You know, I talk very much in this book about how a deep integration is one not where you just have complete self-sacrifice. You know how there's some people they are like, there, well, well, maybe you, <laughs> maybe you would make this argument. There's no such thing as the self. Everything should be in the service of others. And I mean, there's all these trite statements that some people say, and I'm not saying I've heard you say it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I actually think that there's a middle ground here. You know, I think that there is a, is a great value in owning your highest values and owning, uh, having a stable sense of self. I, I talk in the book about the psychological research we have done um, on uh, vulnerable narcissism, for instance, and other forms of psychological disorders where people suddenly feel like they have no identity anymore in a, to an unhealthy degree. So I try to figure out what is healthy identity, what is healthy self versus unhealthy self. So what I do in my book, I don't make the argument there's no self. I make the argument that we can distinguish between a healthy self and an unhealthy self. So what's healthy and what's unhealthy? 
Okay. So I do have a, 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 a chapter on self-esteem, trying to delineate these boundaries. So a healthy self or a healthy self-esteem is, is one where you feel worthy. You feel not that you're better than others, but that you're just, you're a worthy human being in this world. You know, so many psychological issues can arise from someone who feels unworthy, you know? So I also try to take a psychological perspective to a lot of this and, and argue that a complete lack of self sometimes can be psychopathological. So how do we distinguish between these, these different things? And then the second form of a healthy self-esteem is having a healthy sense of mastery and pride, uh, authentic pride for something that you've legitimately put into the world through your hard work, through your dedication, your, your devotion. Um, that's something I think that you, you know, you should be proud of. You shouldn't just say, I have no self. I shouldn't be proud of what I've done. I mean, I've had debates about this. I had a four-hour debate with uh, the other Harris, Sam Harris, <laughs> about free will, because we we don't agree <laughs> on this. And he, you know, I think that there is like something to be you that has a free will worth wanting. And that is something that I think we should, we're, we're allowed to take a little bit of credit for. Now, the problem is people take too much credit for it. <laughs> narcissists, see, narcissists take too much credit for it, and people with, with psychopathology take too little credit for their existence. But I think there is something there that we're allowed to take a healthy credit for it. Just to really fully check the box, can you say more about exactly what an unhealthy self is in contradiction to or in contrast to the the two aspects of a healthy self, which includes self-worth and taking a reasonable amount of pride in what you what you do in your life, your mastery. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, I, I've studied narcissism and its many manifestations. And there are uh, a bunch of manifestations of narcissism. Some that uh, some people might not even be aware of. I mean, they may be aware of it. You know, like, and when I put a name to it, they'll be like, "Oh, that's that's what that's called." So a lot of people, most people, when they think narcissism, they think of the chest thumping. It's called the grandiose narcissist. That's the one who's like, "I'm the greatest." <laughs> right? When I say narcissist, don't most people think of that kind of narcissist? So the thing is, there are not a lot of psychopathological implications of grandiose narcissism. Very few grandiose narcissists end up on the psychotherapy couch because they don't meet the criteria for that. They're, they're, they're happy with their lives. Even though they're creating havoc in their wake, they actually score high on our life satisfaction surveys. But if you survey everyone else around them, like their lovers, you know, they score low in the life satisfaction, but they score high in life satisfaction. So they're, they're not the ones that are going to end up on the therapist's couch. So what we've been looking at is a different flavor of narcissism. Who are the narcissists that end up on the therapist's couch? That's an interesting question, right? That's an interesting psychological question empirically. We find it's the vulnerable narcissist. Some research, some psychoanalytic tradition, they call it the covert narcissist. So that's the one that has such a fragile, uncertain ego that they don't think they're entitled to special privileges because they think they're better than others. They think they're entitled to special privileges purely because of their suffering. So I would call that an unhealthy self. Well, I would call the grandiose narcissist an unhealthy self as well. I would call the vulnerable narcissist that an unhealthy self. Um, and I can keep going further. There's, um, there's another kind of narcissist called the communal narcissist that's been discovered by psychologists. And that's the person who thinks that they and only they will save the world. Now, I see a lot of the communal narcissist in the spiritual world. I see a lot of that in the meditation world. <laughs> that might be a controversial thing to say. I wrote an article for Scientific American on this, on the science of spiritual narcissism, because there's some studies coming out actually trying to quantify this and like look at this within the context of meditation and yoga retreats. 
the problem with communal narcissism, they're, they're a mixed bag because in a lot of ways they do tend to help others, but it all tends to crash and burn because they take over credit and they also have overconfidence. And so they, they will think like, oh, I can solve this. And then destruction happens because of their overconfidence. So that's another flavor. And I wouldn't call that a healthy self either. By the way, there's more, but I wanted to just pause there for a second. Well, feel free. I love talking about narcissists. So if you want to say more about that, go for it. Well, first of all, we're all narcissists. These are, we're talking continuums, you know, which is what I really love doing in the books. I gave questionnaires. I wanted to be like one of the first self-help books that gave you a questionnaire to figure out how much of a are you? <laughs> because these self-help books don't do that. They lie to you. They say they have book titles like you are great. <laughs> it's like, no, you're not. You know, like um, now look, <laughs> like you need to be honest. You need to be honest with yourself <laughs> if you want to grow. <laughs> One way to grow is to really take a look at your capacity for narcissism, your capacity for being a jerk, et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. My own personal process of of growth, it was important. Yeah, I don't, I'm not a claim I'm above any of this stuff. Like I, um, I, I noticed when I was looking, when I started studying this, this research, I was like, oh my gosh, in my 20s, I was such a vulnerable narcissist. I always tried to, you know, like so much of my decisions and things that were trying to prove people wrong. You know, like, like I, that was my main motivation was like, someone said I was stupid. I'm going to prove them wrong. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, that's not the healthiest sense of self. You know, that's not the healthiest way to grow. I mean, I really feel like I grew much, much more when I, when I really was honest about, you know, tendencies and things. I, I think that's the best way to, to growth. Maslow distinguishes between pseudo growth and uh, and real growth as well. And uh, and I love these distinctions he made. I'm trying to kind of carry on in that tradition as I go through lots of things. I talk about pseudo authenticity versus real healthy authenticity. I actually, at a certain point, I have a framework where I think nothing is healthy or unhealthy by itself. I think I think I can slot anything into this framework. You can have healthy. Uh, aggression and unhealthy aggression. You can have healthy humor, unhealthy humor. You can have healthy altruism, unhealthy altruism. I, I kind of went, started going down the list. That makes sense. I mean, I, I don't know the framework per se, but but uh, as I compute it in real time, I can see why healthy aggression would be, you know, protecting somebody from an armed aggressor. So if you're going to do counter aggression, that might be healthy aggression. Am I, am I on to what you're talking about here? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. I think uh, like Martin Luther King talked about this, just the difference. You know, he's he said aggression in the service of love, you know, is the highest form of aggression. Something like that. I mean, I'm misquoting him, but that's the general sentiment. And I agree. You know, I think that well, a lot of people in certain movements use aggression in a healthy way. But I but I want to say that I'm seeing a lot of vulnerable narcissism in in a lot of modern day social justice movements. So I also see a lot of unhealthy aggression going on these days as well. I can see it so clearly too because I study this stuff, you know, and sometimes I'm like I don't want to see it so clearly. It's like doesn't it make you friends to to call out certain things, but um I really do firmly believe that the greatest sense of outcomes in life for growth, for justice, for for your goals um, really need to rest on a firm foundation of reality and a firm foundation of a healthy sense of self, not a not a egoistic or fragile sense of self. Just to get back to your comments about social justice, that could be, to use a, a loaded phrase here, triggering for some. Well, that's a radioactive topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it is. It is but uh, I, uh, it's important, and so I try to I try to regularly, to the best of my ability, touch the third rail on the show. 
I, I'm, I'm imagining what you're saying is it is great to try to help other people. Yes. However, if you're setting yourself up as somebody who deserves special privilege because you are, I don't know, uniquely put upon, that is that can have pernicious effects. Is that what you're trying to say? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, there's there is a emerging research program that I've been writing about. I've been actually working on a couple more articles about it called Group Narcissism. Um, and I'm writing an article, The Rise of Group Narcissism. And I think that uh, we really need to, uh, from, a, from a psychological point, from a sociological point as well, really, really wrap our head around this um, and think this through. Because you see a lot of groups that are fighting with each other, um, more so in the radical extremes of every spectrum. But they're all very much more similar to each other than they like to admit. <laughs> There's a very common sort of theme of like, it, it's, a, it's a battle in control for power. It's a, a battle control for wanting to dominate the culture. You know, and they, but they all want to do it, you know, and they're all fighting each other. Um, and there's a lot of violence being spread over this. And it's, it's very detrimental to society. But isn't, aren't there some groups that are just sort of quantifiably put more put upon and doesn't that give them, uh, um, more of a right? Yeah. More of a right to feel like they have been genuinely victimized. Yeah, Absolutely. It's it's interesting because like this topic in all the podcasts is the one that the guest the host uh, loves zooming it, double clicking on. I guess it's very it's very interesting and important, right? There is a legitimate victimhood, hundred percent. I mean, there are individuals and groups who um, have uh, faced horrible atrocities, uh, no doubt. But I want us to all think through, and I even want the groups themselves to think through what is the the, the goals that they have. What are the best methods? To, to actually be reaching those goals. You know, what are the best sort of, uh, what, you know, what leads to growth? <laughs> Isn't that what, uh, what we're all interested in at the, end of the, at the end of the day is what's most likely to lead to growth and even transcendence, dare I say. Again, just to put a fine point on this, you, you, I'm going to try to summarize your point um, and you'll, you'll correct me, hopefully. It may be true that you come from a group that has genuinely been transgressed repeatedly throughout history. But if what's important to you is your own personal growth and the growth of society writ large, is a mentality of it, it, there's a there's a there's a possibility that you can take victimhood too far. Is that is that basically what you're saying? Well, yes. You know, I try to look at it from a very bird's eye view. As a psychologist, sometimes I quite frankly feel like I'm an anthropologist on Mars, to to borrow an expression from uh, Oliver Sacks, who I, I adore. If you take the most bird's eye view of the situation, what I see are a lot of groups fighting over who's suffering the most. And I think that that's not going to be most, that's not, that's not the method that's going to most likely lead to empathy for each other, for growth, for societal uplifting, for transcendence. If you had to advise a person from a group that has been, you know, victimized what would your advice be about how to move forward with personal and societal growth in the healthiest possible way? Have you read The Some of Us by Heather McGee? No. By Heather McGee? Well, you know, this sort of idea, the, the subtitle of her book is What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. You know, I, th I think she's doing beautiful advocacy work and uh, social justice work in that space and showing that, you know, racism, how it, it's bringing the whole society down. You know, no one's benefiting by that kind of hate, 
even you know people who are aggressors who are causing a racism are not benefiting from that. I do think that less of these kind of zero uh, sum ways of thinking about things and more of um, zero positive ways of thinking about uh, society and increasing and ways of increasing empathy would be a huge step forward. Right. So the stance would be instead of focusing on all of the injustices, it would be to focus on how we would all benefit if there was less racism, because even those who are racist are suffering, whether they know it or not, as a consequence of their racism. Yes, that's true to a very large extent. But just focusing on like what transcendence means, you know, and the idea of how can we foster a society where we rally around common basic human needs, you know, that we realize that we all, at the end of the day, want to matter. We all want to have connections with each other. Um, we all want safety, security, and and being able to foster a society where we can start to see that even our enemy wants those things as well. Uh, you know, how, I mean, th these are not easy things to solve, easy problems to solve. But I've been just trying to think through what what would that look like. Interesting. So you're talking about transcending there. You're talking about transcending your own point Identity. of view, your own biases and getting into the heads of the people who not only you may disagree with, but who you may feel and you may have good evidence uh, to argue have hurt you. Absolutely. I had a, a wonderful chat with Joy Lithcott Hames. I don't know if you if you know she is. Uh, no. She wrote like How to Be an Adult. Uh, I had a, she was on my podcast and she was telling recounting a story of racism in her childhood, a really uh, heartbreaking uh, story where uh, she went back to her locker and there were things written in her locker that were really racist. And, you know, I was recounting to her a, a, a very similar situation I had when I was in special education as a kid uh, for an auditory disability that I had. I was bullied a lot. And we both like were like breaking out in tears here. I felt such a strong connection to her, you know, and she felt such a strong connection to me. And I, I keep returning to that kind of experience that I had and think, you know, well, how can I bring humanistic psychology to the table here to make more of those kinds of experiences in this world? Much more of my conversation with Scott Barry Kaufman coming up right after this. Okay, you brought me back to definitions. I do have a few, two, two others I want to add to the list. You talked briefly about humanistic psychology earlier and the notion of a whole person, I believe. Um, yes. I, I, would, I, I could benefit from hearing that more about what exactly you mean by that. And then the other definition I want to add to your notepad is self-actualization, which is a phrase that's come up a lot, and I've been a terrible host in not getting you to define it thus far. This is going to be a fun one. Um, so whole person is, you know, how in the world do you define such a thing? I, I was going to call my book Transcend. I was going to call it, my, my working title was How to Be a Whole Person. And, you know, a lot of people were like, nah, that shouldn't be your title, Scott. Like, I was even going to have a scale, a, a, a test, a scientifically valid test that tells you how, what percentage, you're 30% you're of a whole person. You're like, Scott, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't do that. So, I mean, I do have a whole person scale, a validated scale. But with all that said, what all, all I mean by it is, you know, to what extent, you know, I, I can, and I could pass the buck to another phrase and say, I just mean, what does it mean to be fully human? And then you'll be like, okay, that's cheating. What is fully human? 
Um, by the way, it turns out Maslow didn't even like the phrase self-actualization more close to the end of his life. He preferred the term fully human. And I think that the way he thought about fully human, the way the humanistic psychologist thought about it, because Carl Rogers, the humanistic psychologist, talked about being becoming fully human as well. So they meant, you know, what does it mean to be a fully vital integrated person where you don't leave parts of you on the table, that you, you're really operating at your full capacity, but you're also able to access the full depths of humanity. You know what it feels like to be sad. You have access to a very broad range of the human experience, but you are operating at full power, so to speak, your full strengths, your full sort of, um, you know, what, are, what is your highest potential? And I think that's basically what Maslow meant by self-actualization. He actually co-opted the term uh, from a neurologist, Kurt Goldstein. He wrote the book, The Organism, where he found, Kurt Goldstein found in his brain-damaged patients that the brain had a will to self-actualize, that even uh, with trauma injury to the brain, there were other parts of the brain that desperately wanted to take over those functions. And Maslow really loved that and co-opted that term and used it as more broadly. Um, as uh, you know, this human will. Uh, Carl Rogers, the humanist psychologist, called it the self-actualizing tendency. We all have this tendency for growth. We we want to, at the end of the day, move toward growth. But there are so many things that take us away from it: internal things as well as external constraints and and, and various things. Um, you know, we share a lot of needs with each other, with our common humanity, the needs for connection, like I said, the needs to matter, the need for safety, the need for respect and self-esteem from others. You know, the need for self-actualization is what is that is the need to express and to put into existence that unique aspect of yourself that you don't share with others necessarily. You know, what is the, what is the most unique thing about you that can have the most uh, maximum sort of, if not impact on the world, that can bring it to its, its greatest uh, expression that you would feel most alive? And creative. So it seems like there may be a distinction between self-actualization, which is understanding what makes you special, and then uh, you know operationalizing that and materializing it in the world, and being a whole person or a whole human, which is bringing all the parts of yourself to the table in a way that, like, yeah, I do have parts of me that are are less functional than others, but can I come into a relationship with those parts of me so that I'm harmonizing it into a whole? Yeah, absolutely. And is and I, I feel like that's very much in line with your your own sort of journey, right? Your own learnings, teachings, um, and your meditation journey, right? Hasn't, hasn't it been a constant journey of integration for you into self-acceptance and awareness of all sorts of anxieties you may have had in the past and stuff like that? Yeah, I would say the arc of it thus far has been, first of all, getting some degree of self-awareness, which allowed me, or, or mindfulness, you know, just being able to see what was going on in my mind at any given moment so that it doesn't own me. You know, I can see, oh yeah, I'm getting angry, but I don't have to be owned by the anger. And then the next step in that was actually having a warmer relationship to the angry or defensive or jealous parts of me uh, 
and seeing that that the, those neurotic programs uh, are trying to help me, however unskillfully, but I don't have to be owned by them. And so I, I realized that for me, the sort of first step of mindfulness, I thought I was being mindful, but there was a kind of aversive flick in there when I would notice um, anger coming up or something like that. And then adding in the extra ingredient of warmth has really been useful. Yeah, I just want to say your meditations have been helpful to me. Uh, I'm I'm a fan. <laughs> Thank so you. It's it's quite an honor to be be on your podcast. Uh, yeah, reading about your journey has been helpful for me in my own journey as well. Reading about other people's journeys as well. Uh, I I like people who are very who are brave enough to be very brutally honest about their journey. Um, that that's I find that really helpful to me. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. What is the core thesis of your book and what advice do you provide in terms of how we can all vector toward transcendence? What, what practically can we do? What would a self-actualizing society look like? More of a society where we give people the opportunity resources to, first of all, to self-actualize, you know, so we help them at a basic minimum not live in a, live a life of insecurity and, uh, and feeling unsafe. But we, have, we must do more than that. And this is, Maslow made this clear. He said just helping people with their lack of safety is not moving them in the towards of growth necessarily. And, th and this is actually why I have a revised hierarchy of needs, which is a sailboat metaphor, you know, um, where you, you have your basic boat where you can't have too many holes in the boat of the of the of the foundation, or else, of course, water will get in and you won't move anywhere. But just having a secure boat doesn't assure that you're going to move anywhere unless you open up that sail and uh, be open to uh, moving in your most valued direction, knowing that the waves can come crashing down on us at any time, uh, knowing that also knowing that we're all in the same sea together, even though we're are in our own boat going in, a, in our own direction you know, having that awareness that we're all in the sea together. A self-actioning society would provide both safety needs as well as growth needs and offer, I'm an advocate of things like gifted education. I'm, I, I'm, I think we need to balance equity and excellence. Um, and our society has not really done a good job of balancing the two. Um, you know, we need to do a good job of promoting and offering encouragement, uh, discovering people's talents, discovering people's unique potentialities, um, and giving them an outlet for them. Uh, I focused a lot of my career on what, what would a human-centered schools look like or what would self-actualizing schools look like. Our education system is, is doing everything it possibly can to not self-actualize students. And it, it, it's not providing the safety needs or the growth needs. It's not doing it. It's a great model of failing students in every direction imaginable. But also it's one where a uh, self-actualizing society is one where virtue pays, as Maslow put it. We reward a lot of things monetarily in our society that are things I don't think we should be rewarding. And we don't reward a lot of things that we should be rewarding, um, such as character and virtue and people who whose being, just by who they are, is uplifting the world. We need to get them more a piece of the of the conversation and into positions of power. I've, I've thought a lot about power, and I've thought a lot about this research program I've initiated with my colleagues on the dark versus the light triad, which is a whole other research program. For the past 15 years, psychologists have studied the dark triad, which are things like narcissism, psychopathy, and Machiavellianism. Um, and my colleagues and I have been trying to balance out that psychological literature by 
creating the white triad test and trying to look at the way that plays out in politics and positions of power. Um, you can actually go on my website, uh, scottbarrykaufman.com, and for free, take my Star Wars test. It'll tell where you are in the Force. You know, are you in the dark side of the Force or the light side of the Force? Are you more Yoda or Darth Vader? It, we've scientifically validated that test, so you can take that. I'd uh, be curious to see where you are on that, Dan. But <laughs> but I, I really I really do think that we need to to promote more into positions of power, people who have these light triad characteristics that my colleagues and I have identified. Um, things like uh, humanism, seeing the dignity and worth of each individual, uh, faith in humanity, people who basically have a, have a, a deep abiding faith in the, the goodness of humans. And uh, we call Kantianism, which is the opposite of our cute thing, which is the opposite of Machiavellianism, which is um, Kant's second imperative. Do you remember from intro to philosophy class, Kant's second imperative? No categorical imperative, treat people um, as ends unto themselves, not means to an end. So I do think there will be a better place if, if virtue paid more. Yeah. Fascinating description of, of how society could be nudged in the direction of self-actualization, transcendence, whole humanity. What about individuals? What, what do you recommend in your book or elsewhere for those of us who listen to you talk about these growth potentials and might want to march in that direction, what do we do about it? I'm actually working on a follow-up book right now of just activities to, to get you. And what, what's, what Maslow called the B realm of human existence. Basically, I'm going to reframe your question as, Scott, how can people live in the B realm of human existence more? Great question, dude. <laughs> I think... <laughs> So I'm a little cheeky. That's my personality. But anyway, I love it. Um, yeah, cool. I like to have I like to have fun and be serious at the same time. Um, so I think the B realm is Maslow called it like the being realm of human existence. Um, and he he uh, distinguished that from the deficiency realm of human existence. You know, when we're motivated by deficiency all the time, we have a certain lens upon which we see the world. Everything we want the world to conform to our deprivation. So if we're chronically hungry. Everyone looks like a potential hamburger to us or a, a broccoli if you're a vegan. You know, like if you're chronically lacking friends, everyone looks like a potential friend. You know, if we're chronically lacking in respect, we demand respect. You know, you, you see the, the, the villains, you know, in the superhero movies, you see the villains who, when they were 10 years old or whatever, they had an idea at a science festival, they got shut down, and they're like, someday I'll take over the world. It's like, well, calm down. Like, <laughs> that's quite an extreme deprivation uh, uh, sort of uh, way of, of, of growing from that. But when you can be in, in the growth realm um, or the being realm of human existence, it's like it, Maslow said it's like replacing a cloudy lens with a very clear lens. You see the world and you see people for who they are. You see their imperfections. You see their humanity. And you're not trying to change the world to conform to your deprivations, but you are trying to grow as a human. Um, and you're trying to um, see and seek out more beauty, more meaningfulness, the, the B values of life. I was able to, to find, and I, I put into the book, uh, Maslow's, um, he called them B exercises. He started to call everything B, you know, B love, B, what does love for the being of others look like? But he called them B exercises. All sorts of things like sample things, keep your eye on the ends, not only on the means, fight familiarization, seek fresh experiences, um, embrace your past, 
Embrace your guilt rather than running from it. Be compassionate with yourself. Be understanding, accepting, forgiving, and perhaps even loving about your foibles as expressions of human nature. Enjoy and smile at yourself. Um, ask yourself, how would this situation look to a child, to the innocent, to a very old person who is beyond personal ambition and competition? And then I'll just, there's a bunch more. I'll end with one that's probably one of my favorite. If you find yourself becoming egoistic, arrogant, conceited, or puffed up, think of mortality or think of other arrogant and conceited people and see how they look. Do you want to look like that? Do you want to take yourself that seriously to be that unhumorous? It kind of brings us back to the beginning of the conversation and your existential yeah, crisis around mortality. How have you systematized all the things you learned during the writing of this book into your life now in ways that have made you happier? Um, there's definitely like a more easiness of being than I used to have. I'm still, man, I'm still on the journey. I mean, I, I, again, I'm not like I'm enlightened and you're not Dan, <laughs> you know, you know, so I'm, I'm still definitely very much on this journey, but, but I have, I have noticed significant changes that I would like to take a little credit for. You know, remember I told you how it's okay to take a little credit. I, w I would like to take a little credit for some things. I think that I've worked very, very hard to accept there are actually certain aspects of myself that they ain't going away. <laughs> you know what I mean? That could be a, so hard for some people to recognize. There's some preference to have, desires, you know, like nothing like too horrible. I don't want, like the human imagination here to like think, but there are things that like I wouldn't be proud of, you know, like, you know, even some of my food preference, and all of us I think can relate to the just food preference. You know, look, it's not going to go away. You're always, when you see that chocolate, you're going to like the chocolate. And I think there are just a lot of things like that that I've started to just see with a more humorous light than a self-condemning light. And that's really freed me. It's freed me to um, to have greater flexibility, to indulge when I want to. Also, freedom flexibility to laugh at it and, and, and walk on, walk on and do something else, you know, um, and, and in a loving way. That's been a big change for me, big change for me, lowering those perfectionistic tendencies. And are there practices you use in order to lower the perfectionistic tendencies? Or is it just something you've just come to organically and are able to practice in your life without any sort of formal practice? Yeah, I do think that living a life intentionally is important. So I, I have worked on intentionally integrating things. To me, it's it's a fun little game. It's a fun puzzle. You know, let's say, hmm, let's say I have panic attacks. And I know I have panic attacks when I give talks. And well, I'm not going to like be afraid of giving talks anymore. I mean, that was a big one for me, by the way. I, I became a keynote speaker. And I was like, I have a choice here. I can like just not go live that life because I know that I, I could have a panic attack on stage. And, or I could figure out like a game. How can I integrate that into the game? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, let's say I have a panic attack on stage. How can I make that part of the game? And I just, I've been uh, on this journey through all these kinds of things to, to bring my whole self to the table. Like I, I remember I was, I was on stage in like Brazil and I remember being on stage and having this out-of-body experience where I thought to myself, wow, wouldn't that be interesting if I had a panic attack right now? And then, and then that thought was like, wait, why did you, why do you just think of that, Scott? Why do you think of that? And then, and then I, and, but I'm, by the way, I'm still giving my talk in this moment. I'm still talking about, you know, and we need to help the children. <laughs> we, need to, we need to help. But then my, my head, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what if the, the, the ground beneath my feet would fall right now? You know, what if I just, and, and then I suddenly started to feel 
like the ground falling beneath my feet. And, and I'm like, wow, you're really talking, you're into this. And then I had this thought to myself because I actually, I actually, um, I paused, I paused for my speaking and I thought to myself, I could run off the stage right now. What are my options? <laughs> you know, I, I could run off the stage, just like collect myself, calm down. I bet I could come back and like make a joke, be like, I look everyone, I just had a pack attack and I bet that I could go, go, go through with this. And, and I actually did believe that I could. Um, but then I also thought to myself, you know, wow, if I just talked myself so easily into having this panic attack, Scott, you are one absurd. That means that you could just as easily talk yourself out of it. So then I talked myself out of it and I continued and I actually went through the rest of the thing and I was fine. I guess what I'm saying here is I, I don't really know exactly the moral of the story, but I am giving you an example of how I've learned to just like live life, like just embrace it. You seem like you're talking about a, not an end state, but a result of sorts on a journey or, or a leveling up on, on, on a growth path. But I, we a few minutes ago, you listed these practices that Maslow recommended. I'm just curious, are there practices you do that either recommended by him or, or that you would recommend or that you found elsewhere that have helped you get to this state? Or is it really oh, yeah. just that you've had some insights and as a consequence, you're able to laugh at your desire for, you know, a sleeve of Oreos at two in the morning instead of just acting on it. I mean, a lot of reading, like research and reading, reading about the, what leads to human potential. And I and I'm not just saying this because I it's like the I feel like it's the obvious thing to say, and I and it's the elephant in the room that I've been trying to avoid because I don't want to sound trite, but meditation. I wrote an article for Scientific American called A Skeptical Scientist Mindfulness Journey or something like that. That was roughly because I used to be very skeptical of meditation. And I took a uh, eight-week MBSR course. I've now taken an MBSR course twice and find that that is wonders for me. And, and then uh, most recently, I've really been getting into Locke Kelly's um, flavor of mindfulness. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Um, but uh, uh, non non dual mindfulness. I'm sure you've heard of non dual mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever heard of any Locke Kelly's uh, teachings? Or I know I know the name, but we don't know each other. He was on my podcast recently, and it blew my mind because there there's something that I really like about uh, non duality and and that whole tradition of mindfulness that has done even more wonders for me personally than than the MBSR brand brand of mindfulness. Can you describe what it is and how it helped you? It's not like a return to the breath. It's a return to one's natural state of being. It's tapping into this natural state of love and um, and pure being that Maslow talked about. You know, when Maslow talks about living in the B realm of human existence, he, in a lot of ways, he's saying it's getting back in touch with the child within us. It's getting back in touch with um, this primal, primal state of of being, and what I also like about this 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 form of mindfulness, he called it he calls it effortless attention. He calls it effortless attention because you're you're not trying to transcend the ego. You're actually um, not trying to you're not trying to transcend anything. You're not trying to get rid of anything. Um, you're not trying to get anywhere. In fact, if you feel ego, you fully feel it. And then and this is where the science stops for me, and I start getting into. Um, language that is the only kind of language I can use to describe the feeling because I still haven't found the, the certain scientific terms that help me know what it fe experience she feels like. This is where that stops. The science stops um, in terms of the language, but I start to feel this life energy that 
is the closest thing I can call to God. Um, I've written about this. Um, I've written, I wrote an article called, What Does God Feel Like? Hmm. Because I, it seems to me like it just across all different traditions, there still is a common experience. And that's what I'm interested in as a scientist. And, but, but also, you know, as, as a human who's trying to forge a common connection across all humans, what, what does God feel like? And there's got to be something in common. And there is a certain life force that I, when I tap into and I feel this lightness of being that is so self-accepting. But when I tap into it, and what's unique for me is it, it is absurdist as well. <laughs> there's, a, there's a certain Scott Barry Kaufman flavor to it, you know, where I realize, you know, that my contradictions are just as absurd as this other person's contradictions. I'm not going to condemn this other person's contradictions because I feel such a great affinity to them. I feel such love for them. So is this what you were driving at, low these many minutes, right back at the beginning of our conversation when you said, I asked you, what's the punchline? And you said, well, there is no punchline. It's really about, it's really about these plateau experiences. Uh, the the yeah. I believe you used the term lounging in heaven. But he said lounging, it's like lounging in heaven, but not getting so excited about it. Mm. He's saying that because like he used to say that peak experiences were like, entering heaven, you know? Mm. So he was contrasting it to the way he used to talk. He, he's making fun of even himself. Maslow. You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what I love about Maslow as well. Like, he used to, like, he used to, like, when he started talking about plateau experiences, he started to kind of roll his eyes at how his descriptions of the peak experiences, like the be-all and end-all of life. And the only way that he faced it is with his own mortality. He had a heart attack about 18 months before he died. The doctor said he needed to rebuild. He needed to rebuild his heart. Um, he could have another heart attack any at any point. And he um, said at that point he started living what he referred to as the post mortem life. Hmm. He said, "I wish everyone could live a post mortem life. I wish everyone could die and then come back and be given a certain uh, amount of uh, months to live, so that they could experience this." He said it gave him such a, a deep abiding sense of the miraculous in the everyday that he had taken for granted his whole life. And he really believed this is what transcendence is all about. And so the miraculous in everyday, which is a, just a, a nice way of talking about the plateau experience. What are the quotidian plateaus that you experience? I'm curious. Oh, I get I, I get excited by like th this conversation <laughs> like is is to me a plateau experience. Being able to be in the flow state with another human, to be in the flow state with nature. See, for me, I find the plateau experience most likely to happen when I can find something exciting and new and something I talk about all the time. So when I enter these kind of podcasts, I know a rough outline of what I'm going to say, but I really want to go and I want to say things I've never said before. I want to learn something new that I've never learned before. So I can genuinely say like, you know, I love this conversation I had with you today, but I love it because I don't really ever know what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, and I like that. I just want to go back to just in case you think I'm not listening to you, you, there were a few times where you would say things and I would write it down and, and I would let, um, now I've let, dozens and dozens of minutes uh, go by before I circle back to it. But I feel like now might be the right time to go back to a very intriguing phrase you dropped a while ago, pseudo-authenticity. Hmm. What is that? 
Oh, yeah. I wrote uh, an article called Authenticity Under Fire, where I really go into great detail about the science of that. I think that there's a great myth that there's something that we can call the true self or the real self. People keep throwing that phrase around in the spiritual world like it's something that exists. You know, The same people who say there's no such thing as a self will then in the next sentence say, for $5,000, take my seminar and learn how to discover your true self. It's like, okay, well, I think well, the right way to look at it is that you know, authenticity, there's a healthy authenticity that, and an unhealthy authenticity. There's a kind of authenticity where it's in the service of growing and forming connections with others. And I distinguish between all different types, types of unhealthy authenticity. I say, you know, there are people who speak their mind no matter what, what no matter what enters their mind and they view themselves like, I'm just being authentic. And I say in my book, no, you're just being um, you know, <laughs> there are some people there, they're, they're like, well, I actualize all my potentialities and be authentic. It's like, no, you're, you're, um, you have to be a little bit more judicious than that. <laughs> you know, if you want a healthy form of authenticity, it's going to help you grow as a whole person and, and form a deeper connection with others. You know, maybe you want a little more intentionality about that. I do think that authenticity can have, you're allowed to have intentionality about your authenticity. You know, it's like, it, these are not, uh, dichotomous things. Right. And so, again, this is just like my whole framework for healthy and unhealthy. I think that uh, there is a, a healthy form of authenticity, which is what side of yourself do you want to be true to? Because I don't think that there is a, a true self. I think that part of a route to growth is actually re realizing that. Because a lot of people will do things, you know, you see these politicians, you know, they do all sorts of things and then they have, write their, their, their apology on Facebook. And they, they, it says like, look, you know, that wasn't the real me. You know, that was, I don't know who that guy was, you know, but as my wife can tell, or my friends can tell you, the real me is loving, caring. It's like, okay, look, hold on. Like that was the real you, but there also are other real you. There are other aspects of you that are loving. There are other aspects of you that are, that are beautiful, for sure. I'm sure there are. Yeah, I'm not denying that. But I do think a big part of, uh, of Root to Growth is taking full responsibility for your whole self. You, on psychological questionnaires, you actually, if you ask people on psychological questionnaires, and I call this the authenticity bias, you, and you ask them, which sides of yourself are, would you call are the real you? you? You can actually do this in psychological studies. Um, ask people to, um, you give them a whole list of adjectives, and you say, what's the real you? People are actually really predictable about this. They put their most moral things as the real them. They say, the moral stuff, that's the real me. Everything else is, <laughs> that's this person's fault. <laughs> it's my mom's fault for the way she raised me. You never blame the mom for your moral stuff. You know, Carl Rogers said that his patients were obsessed with coming to him with the question, who am I, doc? Who am I? Now, look, this is such a common reason why people enter psychotherapy. They reach a crisis point of meaning. They reach a crisis point of connection where they say, doc, I don't know who I am anymore. Help me know who I am. But I think that's the wrong question. I think that if you, do, if you spend your whole life trying to figure out who you are, you wasted your life. <laughs> I think that the the question is, what potentialities within me do I want to devote my limited time and space on this earth cultivating, growing, developing? That's a tangible question you can ask yourself right now and that can fundamentally transform the way you live your life moving forward. To me, that's a good question. I think the who am I question is one that you should just stop worrying about. I think it's a beautiful place to leave it. Uh, just 
can I get you before we set you free here to plug your podcast, your book, any other resources that we should know about? Go for it. Thank you. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, I wrote the book called Transcend the New Science of Self-Actualization. I have a podcast, which Dan's been a guest. Do you remember being a guest on my podcast years ago? Of course I do. Yes, of course. It's called The Psychology Podcast. And um, I just started the Center for the Science of Human Potential. And uh, I'm really excited about that. And I offer courses and stuff. You can check that out at humanpotential.co. Thanks. Thanks a lot for giving me the opportunity and um, just to chat with you today as well. Thank you for coming on, my cat and I. Both thank you, Toby. What do you want to say here? saying feed me human um all right scott thank you appreciate it <laughs> thank you thanks again to scott that was really fun we do have one last order of business before we let you go here and it's a little invitation to participate in this show we here on the 10 Percent happier podcast are very busy preparing a series of episodes that we'll be posting in the coming weeks about how to navigate one of the most complex and dominant forces in many of our lives work. Many of us spend more time with our colleagues than our family. And yet sometimes we forget to treat these relationships with any level of intentionality. Add into the mix the changing nature of work, at-will employment, remote work, the gig economy, and you have a recipe for frustration, burnout, and more. So in this series of podcast episodes, we're going to explore how to better handle your coworkers uh, to boost your resilience in the face of uh, what can sometimes seem like a, a Sisyphean uh, mountain of, of work and, and how to cultivate skills to handle the combination of these two dynamics. We don't want to do these shows uh, without your participation, however. So we're right now officially inviting you to send us some questions so that we can learn more about what kinds of challenges you're facing so that we can better craft these episodes to help you out. And we'd like to hear your questions via voice memos so that we can play the questions right here on the show for our experts. To submit a question, just follow the five easy steps that are listed in the show notes. And yeah, thanks. I encourage you to participate. This show is made by Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. And as always, a shout out to my ABC News comrades, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan, We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus meditation with the one and only Jeff Warren.